Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 132, recorded on August 26, 2021. The Cloud Pod takes a trip down memory DB lane. Good evening, Peter, Ryan, and Jonathan. Hello. Hey, Justin. How's it going? Hey. Good, good. You know, I, I got up early. I watched some keynotes. I cursed up Amazon for not doing anything I wanted them to do. And, <laughs> you know, so it was another great, successful week in the cloud, I guess. Uh, had some hug ops issues this week, too. So it just, it's been a long week. It's been a long week uh, already. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, the Reinforced Summit happened. The AWS Summit happened. Uh, and we have a winner. We have an official winner of our prediction draft. Uh, and uh, we'll go through that here quickly. But first, Ryan, uh, you know, we did not get, uh, we, we did get a new announcement uh, at the keynote. So that took out your first uh, pick. Uh, AWS did not highlight any case study benefits on Graviton, which I was kind of surprised about. Uh, and they did not give us anything better than SCPs, which is, I'm just yeah, sad about too. Mm-hmm. I was hoping. Uh, Peter, they did not give us multi region cognito pools. I knew they would. Nor did they give us organizational. Yeah. <laughs> I know, use your wish list. <laughs> Organizational level networks didn't come either, and a significant feature update for deploying Lambda at the edge, which I argued with you last week. I thought they already did. You just weren't here when we recorded it. So <laughs> I think uh, you were you you were a bust on all those. And then I did not get banned with cost reductions. I did not get Aurora serverless, uh, MySQL 8 support, and I did not get anything for SCP authoring of tools, uh, tools for authoring them. Uh, but, you know, who did get something, Jonathan? Jonathan missed, though, on two first. So improvements of new features around CloudFormation validation, that was a big zero. And user behavior analytics tools for workspaces, which was a great security choice. Uh, that was also a big negative for you. But you know what they did talk about? Steve Schmidt talked about ransomware attacks. And who cho- said, how AWS can protect you from ransomware attacks? That was yeah. Jonathan. And while they didn't release a new feature to help you protect ransomware attacks, they did tell you how you can use the existing services to help you uh, deliver all your ransomware attack saving needs. So... There you go. Uh, you know, congratulations, Jonathan. Very well Thank you very much. I deliver all my ransomware attacks through AWS. <laughs> 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 nicely, nicely done. Uh, if there had been a tiebreaker, I would have won the tiebreaker because I said uh, there'd be zero new announcements, and there was one. And uh, the closest to me was Peter at three, so uh, it was it was bound to happen that uh, that was going to lose uh, unless we unless we all did zero on the main show. So mm-hmm. there we go. Well, uh, even though they didn't announce it at the summit or at the security summit, uh, security event, they did have new, new announcements last week, as usual. So the first up, uh, before anything started, they announced MemoryDB for Redis, uh, which is a new Amazon service for highly transactional applications that need to be able to deliver transactions quickly and, a, and with a uh, slow database uh, causing you all kinds of problems. This is your solution to all things high performance in the database side. Uh, you know, typically in a high-performance database, you solve read issues by putting a caching layer like memory, uh, like Redis or uh, Memcached. And, uh, you know, that's a great choice, but you're now paying for both an RDS database and a Memcached or a Redis system. But uh, AWS is now giving you the new capability of Amazon Memory DB for Redis, and this gives you the ability to combine your cache and DB into one, giving you the best performance of a cache and DB layer without having to spin up Elastic Cache, Aurora, or Dynamo. Amazon MemoryDB is Redis compatible. Uh, it's a durable in-memory database, and MemoryDB makes it easy and cost-effective to build apps that require microsecond read and single-digit millisecond writes, performance with data durability and high availability. Uh, so that's uh, that's the announcement. Um, you know, overall, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of questions about like, well, what's different about this versus Elastic Cache? And so apparently, Elastic Cache, uh, you could have data loss 
if you lose an AZ, uh. Uh, which you may not have known about if you had not read the fine print. <laughs> uh, so there's really two big differences. First, uh, memory DB can be a safe primary DB, which a last cache cannot, uh, for your application because it provides data durability and microsecond read and single-digit millisecond write latency. And with memory DB, you don't need to add a cache in front of your database to achieve that low latency. Uh, Elastic cache is great for microsecond latencies for both reads and writes as well, but it is ideal for caching in front of existing databases that can be recreated in the event of data loss <laughs> and can be rebuilt quickly. Uh, right now, this is only available to you in U.S. East 1, Ireland, Mumbai, South America, uh, with more regions coming soon. This does run on the R6G Graviton 2 instances, and a migrating from ElastiCache for Redis to MemoryDB is as easy as taking a backup of your ElastiCache cluster and restoring it to MemoryDB cluster. Um, although, I do suspect DMS support will be coming in any day now. Uh, again, they said this is cheaper than running ElastiCache on Aurora. That is true, because Aurora for MySQL and ElastiCache uh, would cost you about $678.78, uh, where memory DB would cost you $451.34. So that's great, uh, but if you, you know, didn't <laughs> want to get rid of your MySQL database, it gets real expensive real quick, because it's definitely $151 more expensive than ElastiCache, and it's uh, more expensive than Aurora for MySQL, or uh, Postgres for MySQL. Or, sorry, or Postgres for Aurora. Uh, so that's a that's a big deal. The other thing it doesn't these all prices are based on uh, you know rack rates because we always do rack rate prices here. But for ElastiCache and for Aurora, you can get uh, reserved instances, which you can save you a bunch of money. Uh, you cannot get that from MemoryDB as well, so that's a bit of a bummer. So I'm a little confused, like what advantage this gives you over a service like DynamoDB, right? It's it's a it's a Redis, so it's non non relational non relational. <laughs> it's NoSQL. <laughs> Uh, and you know, and so I'm curious that they're, they're, I know it's a pretty common pattern to use ElastiCache in front of a database and that's expensive, but that's usually so that you can get sort of the best of both worlds of having, you know, pre-canned relational data. Yeah. I, I don't see this as a replacement, right? This is, this is for people who are running Redis today. They don't need any of the other features of a relational database, but they want their data to be durable which is a much smaller use case than just everybody who needs faster Aurora. Yeah. And, you know, the, the caching and the, you know, the availability of caching or resiliency rather, you know, like that's kind of a known, known thing. It's a, it's a trade-off that you are usually willing to pay for the performance. So uh, it's funny that I, you know, like someone wanted this. Yeah. People who want to use Redis and don't need a relational database. And want it to be durable, so I can imagine well, people I mean, who have a database right now. They have they're, they're running Redis. They're told it's not durable. They said, "How do we make it durable?" Well, put Aurora or Dynamo behind it. It's like, but that's expensive. Okay, we'll make it durable for you. I mean, this is where Redis Cloud comes into play, and so Redis Cloud provides you uh, Redis as a database as part of their cloud service. So this directly competes with some of that capability as well. So they're. You know, my biggest beef with this whole announcement is that they decided to use the name Redis in the title. I thought we, I thought we already learned our lesson about <laughs> this and not using, you know, the vendor's name uh, in your product name. Uh, but apparently, we didn't learn that lesson with Elasticsearch or Elasticsearch. So maybe they've got a deal with them. I, I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I haven't seen anything from Redis yet about what they think about this service. But uh, it's definitely not not a great look, regardless of if there's a deal or not. Next up, Redis changes their licensing. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's only a matter of time. 
Yeah, it only a matter of time. Uh, I do have a couple quotes here, uh, if you're interested in some what some, uh, some people say here. So first, uh, Raju Gulabani, a VP of Databases and Analytics at AWS, who runs the Redis development team. Uh, he says, more and more customers have told us they need an easier way to build modern applications with microservices, which demand both extreme performance and durability. With Amazon MemoryDB for Redis, customers can now simplify their architecture with a durable and ultra-fast in-memory database, free from the hassle of managing a separate cache, database, and underlying infrastructure to quickly and easily build and scale applications that require real-time interactivity and reinvent customer experiences. Uh, so that's his reasoning for that. And, you know, in some ways, I see it as like, oh, this is a, this is Aurora version of Redis, which is kind of nice because they kind of decouple the storage, they kind of do some different things under the hood to make it a little bit more performant, uh, which is interesting. But then why not just call it Redis for Aurora, Aurora's Redis engine or something. I don't know. Uh, then I have a quote here from uh, Andre Berkjakov, and I'm sorry if I butchered that, Director of Engineering at Twilio. Uh, Our platform sends and receives over 105 billion messages a year across voice, email, SMS, MMS, FB Messenger, or that's Facebook Messenger, I guess, WhatsApp, and more. And we need a database to handle this high volume of messages while also maintaining low latency. Amazon MemoryDB for Redis is highly scalable, easily scaling to more than 100 terabytes per cluster. As an in-memory database, Amazon MemoryDB for Redis provides extreme high performance that's central for their global platform. And Ryan, you asked someone, apparently someone asked for this. We just found out who. <laughs> there are several others also in the press release uh, who asked for this as well. So you, they, they're not alone. Yeah. <laughs> this is just the one I picked uh, out of a long list. I guess it is a direct competitor to to uh, Redis Cloud, but at the same time, if, if Redis Cloud doesn't provide uh, the mechanism for durability that which which works in a scalable way for AWS to offer as a service, then they have no choice but to implement something like this themselves and kind of go go it alone. Really, so I, I see why they would have to do that if the Redis project itself didn't actually build something that was scale suitable. Which I, I get, and that's and I'm okay with that because you know that's what open source is about. My issue is still that they they use the Redis name in their product. Yeah, Redis compatible. I mean, yeah. Uh, to, to go back to the Elasticache thing, though, I think it's maybe this is going to be sort of the first of many new services, which are kind of like here's here's this new service you you didn't realize you actually needed all along because you didn't realize that Elasticache wasn't durable. <laughs> Uh, I, I learned a hard way that it isn't durable <laughs> uh, through an outage once, uh, not not recently, but a while ago. Uh, so I, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I remember when we mentioned that we were using, uh, we had stateful data in Redis and Amazon support saying why you shouldn't be doing that at all, <laughs> especially you know unless you can recreate the data, then you know the. Architect said, like, yeah, well, we can't recreate the data, <laughs> and then Amazon was like, no, no, you need to get off of this right away. This is not what it's meant to be. So there's definitely customers who have probably accidentally made this mistake oh, as well. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I could think of uh, a team right now that I would like to text message and say, hey, would you please go look at this? Because you need this. Yeah, me too, actually. Even if it was okay that you, you sort of a data loss, there was still going to be some kind of um, some cost to recovering from that. So it makes sense that there's, there's now a way that you don't need to suffer the cost mm-hmm. of suffering from data loss because now it's durable across AZs. I mean, it just means that you can provide the same kind of dictionary service at a much greater uptime. I also think that the reason why they might keep Redis in the name is the same reason why they probably kept Elasticsearch in the name for as long as they did, which is, you know, it's it's about selling the service. And so, you know, DynamoDB is not a direct Redis plugin. They do very similar things. So how do you get those customers that are already using Redis to adopt your system? You know, it's very easy if you put it in the name. This is, oh, this... Yeah, but and they've done MongoDB compatibility as an option. I mean, I don't like mm-hmm. that either, but at least sort of would have been more okay with that. Yeah. 
But now, now everybody knows they can just plug in their application that's migrating from the data center directly into this without mm -hmm. having to deploy Redis in the cloud themselves. Yep. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, it's another time for another birthday celebration, guys. Uh, any, uh, you know, the birthday this month is Amazon EC2, uh, which has now turned 15 years old. So it's uh, early. It looks like it is driver's license as well. Uh, you know, we probably won't cover all these birthdays just because I think we've covered the big three that most people think about S3, uh, EC2 now, and BPCs. Uh, so this is probably the last time I mentioned the, the uh, 15th anniversary, but uh, you know, maybe unless there's something really interesting in the argument uh, that Amazon writes up on it, or the article that argument Amazon writes up on it. But uh, you know, since it launched in 2006, uh, and it has been the core of the infrastructure as a service uh, service from Amazon, uh, it's had several large iterations that I thought were kind of interesting. So uh, in 2006, it launched uh, in beta. And uh, when it launched, it did not have, uh, well, it had a classic VPC, which we just talked about retiring. But it also uh, did not have EBS volumes. It was all ephemeral. So you would spin up your box and it would die. You lost your data. So that was a bummer. Uh, Amazon fixed that in 2008 with EBS volumes. Uh, and, you know, again, these are very static servers just running very VPS-like today what we consider a VPS to be today. Uh, then in 2009, they gave you auto-scaling, CloudWatch, and ELB, and what I really call the beginning of the cloud revolution. And then in 2009, of course, the VPCs. Uh, and then, you know, from 2009 to 2017, it's a bit quiet on the EC2 front. Lots of new instance types, of course, lots of different things. But uh, the next big announcement was Nitro, which came out in 2017, which was really getting rid of the virtualization layer that they had running on top of EC2 forever. A lot of them started doing bare metal boxes. It was a big uh, evolution for them. And then in 2018, Gravitron, of course, being their own custom silicone that makes their servers even faster and more performant for less money, uh, which is quite great. Uh, you know, when this was launched, there was only one instance type. Now there are over 400 variations of instances. <laughs> so, you know, just incredible growth uh, in the EC2 space. Uh, you know, and if they had announced this a little bit earlier, we had talked about it, and we told you there was a special event going on on, on the 23rd and 24th, but this post came out on the 23rd. <laughs> so we can't really tell you about the event because mm -hmm. it's already passed. But uh, we were hoping it's going to be on YouTube because there was some really great um, lookbacks at EC2 over the last 15 years, innovations they've done, and, and why they did them uh, that are available. And so hopefully those will be available to you on YouTube uh, very shortly on the Amazon events uh, page. So you can check those out. But uh, yeah, overall, happy birthday, EC2. I can't remember when it was announced, but I think the one big one you're missing here is EBS-backed instances changed the game. 2010, maybe? Yeah, that was definitely Ish. around the VPC time frame. <laughs> yeah, it might have actually been in 2009 with auto-scaling, it, or it came right after that because it was needed in the auto-scaling world where if a server is going to go up or down, you might need to be able to get static you know, data off a disk. Was all storage back in 2006 really just straight ephemeral, or did they have instance drives as well? Like it wasn't EBS. But. Straight up. I mean, I, I wasn't doing a lot of Amazon then. I was one of those people saying cloud is in someone else's computer and the hippies are doing it. Uh, so I don't really know. But uh, my understanding is that the very first few years would just if I'm yeah, like for EMR, hmm. spin it up, stream your stuff from S3, do your processing, put it back in S3 and destroy them. Crazy, right? Mm hmm. Just, just like classic, where every server has its own firewall. Yeah, that, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's a little easier for me to grasp than, you know, ephemeral data in 2006, because, you know, most applications in 2006 that I was around like could not handle that type of workload. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think a lot of people yeah. could handle that kind of workload back in 2006. We didn't have the technology or the ability to go in and out of S3 as easily as we can now. But, you know, Amazon's trying to change the game, right? They're, they're telling you this is a new paradigm and that you don't need these things 
uh, you know, where they're at. You know, but it did prevent you from running databases on EC2. Well, it didn't prevent people. <laughs> well, people, people did it, not not wisely. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it really kept the masses away until they had it. People probably, did. They probably had a Redis database too. <laughs> probably. I remember stories about like a, an ISP or a, a web hosting provider that was running on all ephemeral storage and like blamed Amazon for losing everyone's websites because they trashed. I mean, that machine. happened last year. Yeah. So <laughs> still happening. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. Still so ridiculous. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to AWS cost categories, uh, which if you are familiar with the FinOps space, uh, you are super excited about this feature because uh, this is all about the FinOps goodness. So uh, you, as you know, and you can categorize your costs into different things. And so based on account, based on uh, you know different rules, tagging policies, after you can sign a cost to or a category to your cost and basically then allocate that into a special supplemental report. They'll help you allocate your costs uh, for billback. Really, is within, is within a day or for showback in certain cases. Uh, but one of the challenges, of course, is that there was no way to take a cost and then split it up across multiple services. And for things like uh, AWS support, centralized logging, Kafka services, API gateways, etc., where you maybe wanted to allocate those costs to other accounts, there's really no way to do that. Uh, but now Amazon has given us the split uh, split charge rule. Uh, for AWS cost categories to split up costs to multiple categories. And so basically, depending on what your rule set is, based on uh, all kinds of different parameters you can choose, uh, it'll basically allocate the cost based on your rules to the different cost category and then provide that to you as part of the supplemental CSV report uh, for all your cost allocations. That is quite practical. It's a great idea. You just keep trying to, you, know, you just keep chipping away at all the features that made you go by cloudability or any of the other cost management tools that are out there. Uh, of course, they did also release this week a terrible solutions uh, implementation quick start that's like 45 services to make it work <laughs> to do cost analysis. So, uh, you know, they yeah, win some, yeah. they lose some, unfortunately. Yeah. Turns out cost analysis in AWS still very, very, very hard. <laughs> yeah. And still very much bring your own battery, you know, provide your own batteries. <laughs> it's not going to come for you out of the box. Well, the IAM Access Analyzer, uh, which helps you generate IAM policies based on access activity found in your organizational cloud trail, uh, now supports a cloud trail and a different account. So before, uh, and in a very annoying fashion, you would only do IAM Access Analysis of a cloud trail in your account. So what you'd end up having to do is actually set up multiple cloud trails, <laughs> one to your centralized you know, repository for security and compliance and retention of that, and then another one inside the account that maybe you have a very small uh, window of data uh, roll-off, but uh, you basically then be able to use IAM Access Analyzer on that data and then get your reports. So now with this new feature, you can uh, point it at that other account where you store all your data and you can get rid of all those localized cloud trails, which makes me super happy. You know, I also wish they could have put this on main stage because I, yeah. I could have gotten mm -hmm. some points for this. So playing around <laughs> with this, you you could, even if you had your cloud trails routed to like a central immutable account or something, you could do local analyzer. Um, I think this really is, just the initiation of it, which makes sense if you think about like you know a security team or or an infrastructure team wanting, wanting to have governance and IAM roles, and so they're they're basically invoking it from a, a different account rather than having to log into that account to run the analysis. But yeah, uh, this is definitely something that's super handy, and and if you know anything to make the development of IAM roles and policies easier, I'm a fan of. As long as it's automatically, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a key thing. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. 
These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. All right. Well, here's the uh, the story that ruined Ryan's day <laughs> when he lost the draft. Uh, the AWS backup audit manager born only for the sole purpose of killing Ryan's chances <laughs> of the draft. Uh, AWS backup audit manager is a new feature of AWS backup that helps you monitor and evaluate the compliance status of your backups to meet business and regulatory requirements and enables you to generate reports that help demonstrate compliance to auditors and regulators. Uh, AWS Backup Auto Manager allows you to continuously and automatically track your backup activities, such as changes to a backup plan or backup vault, and generate automatic daily reports. Of course, it would be nice if it just would auto-fix the backup when it failed, but a whole other conversation. Uh, <laughs> so to get started with this, you create a framework, you scope that framework to an account or to a region, and add the controls you need. Like, I can only, you know, I need to have a backup every 24 hours. If I don't have one after, you know, 48 hours, please send an alert. Uh, all kinds of things like that. Uh, you know, it does require that you use AWS Config as well. Uh, so you know, you get that additional cost on top of your AWS Backup usage. Uh, and the AWS Backup framework can be broken down at a service level as well. So if you want to just have a backup policy for EBS volumes or EC2, you can do that and ignore all the other services that support AWS Backup. Uh, in addition to this, they are excited to have OpenRaven, which is a former and hopefully future sponsor of the CloudPod, uh, as a launch partner uh, for backups. And so OpenRaven will actually help you track and plan your AWS backups with the Audit Manager product, all available to you uh, now in AWS backups. Yeah, but how do you know the backup audit manager is running properly? Yeah. <laughs> you don't care. You, uh, what you care about is the, the person who is on the other end of that daily report just doesn't bother you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, having had, you know, you have intimate knowledge of how to build this exact thing and like be able to go look at the cloud trail logs and the backup snapshot actually occurred properly. Uh, so you, you have no room to talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it doesn't tell you that the restore, the backup is actually restorable. That's the only thing I would say. Maybe we can get that in the future. <laughs> the ability to not only test the backup, but also test the restore. To be fair, I don't actually think it, it admitted any kind of event on failure either. It just sort of would do it the next time. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's true as well. So you've been double trumped, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, testing the restore <laughs> is totally would be totally doable from a managed service perspective. Oh yeah, and, and with the flexible costs and all that, you could very really easily allocate the cost yeah. to it, and it would be super nice. So hopefully that comes soon to AWS Backup. Maybe that's a prediction for rein, reinvent. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, well, you know, the other thing about this one too was that, of course, the quote from uh, CTO of Open Raven, Mark Kerfee, who we interviewed on TCP Talks, uh, he had to say that uh, to successfully recover from a ransomware attack, organizations need to be planned ahead by completing two foundational tasks, identifying critical data and systems, and backing them up as per organizational requirements so they can be protected and recovered. So not only is this a backup service that audits things for your compliance people, but it's also a ransomware rented thing, which is another point for Jonathan. So just you know, double whammy on the on the ransomware side. Nice, well done, well done, Jonathan. I suspect that uh, there's going to be a pretty awesome 2021 through 2023 or five drinking game where if you drink every time someone says ransomware, you will die very quickly. 
Yeah. <laughs> I was reading that the uh, expected cost of businesses for ransomware this year was $6 trillion. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of money. Uh, so like a quarter of, um, of uh, cyber attacks are now ransomware attacks. Mm-hmm. What are they all going to do when this uh, sort of loophole gets tightened up? They're going to prey on the customers who didn't enable yeah. all these things because they're not on by default. Yeah. So, I mean, that's why we still have S3 buckets exposures and people, you know, losing data through S3 buckets because, you know, they're new to the cloud and they haven't learned all the pain that everyone else yeah. learned already. Sucks. So, yeah, it's hard. Uh, it is hard. Well, uh, in the keynote, Steve alluded to some training opportunities and things, but didn't really get into specifics. And so they did release a blog post afterwards talking about two new cybersecurity initiatives aimed to protect organizations and individuals. And of course, as you guys all know, security is job zero at Amazon, as I'd like to tell you in every slide deck about security. Uh, And they're announcing two new initiatives to help you with your security posture. First is the public release of the training they have developed and used to ensure their employees are up to date on how to protect themselves and Amazon customers online through the Amazon Security Awareness Training. Offering will include videos and online assessments. The material uses uses, uh, proven neuroscience and adult learning principles to enhance content retention. And then, of course, the second thing they're announcing for you is uh, they're contributing to an up-leveling internet security as in the authentication front by giving you in certain accounts so that it qualify free hardware tokens. Mm. So you'll be able to get free hardware tokens to enable security on your AWS account uh, if you qualify, which they have not released any of the details of how you qualify for this token, uh, how many you can get for free, uh, or any of those things. And so I wait to hear further details that we will talk about here on the Cloud Pod. Uh, details which will be coming apparently closer to October, which is apparently Cybersecurity Awareness mm. Month. Uh, which, you know, why wouldn't you put the Reinforced Conference in October then with Cybersecurity Awareness Month? Isn't that, isn't that a gimme? Like, I don't, I don't understand that, but uh, here we are. And so, you know, they are giving us more goodies apparently in October. It's too close to reinvent. It, well, you know, it's too close to reinvent, and that would be weird. It's like scheduling the same day as one of the summits. <laughs> mm-hmm. It would be, you know, it totally would be. I mean, are you gonna get a hardware token? I mean, I'm hoping the CloudPod account gets to get a hardware token. That I, I want to know what. So. Yeah, I want to know what the qualification is, and I suspect that it's that you get owned, and it will be bad press, and so you qualify. <laughs> <laughs> but like, again, like like you know, your Capital One or your Netflix, do you get one token? <laughs> do you get yeah. one per account? Give it to Bob. You, you know, like how many? I you know. Okay, Bob's got I mean, it. They are pretty cheap yeah. nowadays. I mean. Then you know, Bob gets fired, and you forget that Bob has the one and only yeah. token for your company. I can just see how this does not end well at the end of the day. That's right. Bob will never change his phone number. That can happen. It'll be fine. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on to Google, who, uh, for the most part, stayed quiet this week, knowing that Amazon had a big event going on, uh, which, you know, is always nice. Uh, so they, the first one up, uh, they actually summarized for me, because I am glad, because I didn't understand anything in this article. <laughs> the article headline is one-click deploy Triton inference server in Google Kubernetes engine. And in their blog post, they put a TLDR, or too long, didn't read. And that is, we introduced the one-click Triton inference server in Google Kubernetes engine marketplace solution to help jumpstart NVIDIA GPU-enabled ML inference projects. Mm-hmm. There you go. I don't have to read anything else in this article because I didn't understand it anyways. And if Google wanted to do this for all ML articles going forward, I would appreciate it because it would make my life so much easier to write show notes. Yeah. Bless whoever was reading the original press release and was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because I did try to read it because I was like, well, I, I just won't cheap out on the TLDR. I'll actually summarize it for you guys. And I, I uh, third, uh, the first third, I was like, okay, and I don't understand yeah. any of this. And we're going back. To, other than Kubernetes, I understand Kubernetes and deploying a thing, but beyond that, I don't. 
uh, well, again, because uh, they are saying out of the way of Reinforce, but also that Reinforce is going on, they had to announce something in the security space. <laughs> and so they decided to drop some new features for Beyond Corp Enterprise, which is now getting a certificate-based access via VPC service controls. Uh, and they highlight that using barrier credentials to authenticate access to Cloud Console and Google Cloud API is nothing new. But if exposed, they can be found and used by attackers. But using a certificate-based access protects against credential theft or accidental exposure by only granting access when the credentials plus a verified device certificate are present. So I'm super glad that they finally got onto the bandwagon that Microsoft's been on for decades. <laughs> super nice on that one. And then the next up is a new on-prem connector capability, giving you the choice of how to connect to on-premise and resources. Uh, customers can secure HTTP and HTTPS-based on-premise apps with identity-aware proxy by deploying a simple connector. Uh, the request is then made for an on-premise app. The IAP authenticates and an authorized user request and then routes the request to the connector. And then they also announced uh, new custom access policies for the Access Context Manager, uh, allowing you to do restrict user access by time and date, credential strength, or if they're using Chrome. Oh, sorry, IE. Can't mm-hmm. use that anymore. Uh, your ways are wild. I, just, I see the Beyond Corp Enterprise features, and you're just like, yes, this is great. But I have nothing to say. Well, I suspect the certificate based access to the consoles are going to be more prevalent. Um, I don't know of this in, in Microsoft Azure or Amazon, but I also know that this is one of the things that starts popping up in, in uh, either you know customer security audits or, or in documentation that I've started to see more and more, which is you know how do you control access to this publicly available API? So yeah, I don't know. Like it's it on one hand, it's a it's a it's a bunch of work to manage this type of thing. But on the other hand, like it is it is security precautions that we need to sort of have. And I, I mostly joke about Microsoft's ability to do this because of Kerberos, mm-hmm. which was all certificates. So you know, but uh, yeah, no, I, it didn't always work as well as they. Hoped. Yeah, I mean, there's nothing Kerberos. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. It's still you know, very prevalent in a lot of a lot of applications and still the back end for a lot of things. So good design tends to stick around. And ultimately any credential, whether it's a certificate or a password or or a, a secret key that generates an MFA code, it, it's all possible to, to be stolen at some point. So it's although although you, you you sort of we talk about it as though it's a second factor, it's still a file on, on the hard drive. You know, it's mm-hmm. still it's, it's just another hard just another yeah. password. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. It's like unpopular opinion, and yeah. SSH key is just another password. It's just a, mm-hmm. has very strict requirements, and it's used in a particular way. But ultimately, mm-hmm. it's 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 thievable, just like anything else. Mm-hmm. I, it's interesting. Actually, I saw this week that GitHub is going to retire um, user password access to repos at the command line, uh, and require you to have your your API key credentials in place and all that. And I thought that was an interesting, cha- you know, interesting choice. But again, yeah, I thought the exact same thing. I'm like, well, my SSH access keys are right. easy to move. <laughs> you know, it's, how secure is yeah. this? Uh, but I, and I also assume it's still for the website that you know, you're still going to have a username and password. So it's, it's really more semantics than anything because you still have to be able to log into the web console, which you're not going to use a certificate for. So. Or if you are, that's, that's going to make some people's head explode. <laughs> but I don't think that's the case. Well, and the, the caveat behind... GitHub's announcement is that there, while it's the basic off of the username and password is going away, you can still create a personal access token and pass that in the same mm-hmm. way. So it's it's not yeah. multi-factor in itself. It's just moving away from password based that you know typically you would share across services. I guess is the protection there. Yeah, which is ne- which is never more annoying than when you're trying to fix a software defect and it keeps failing in the CI/CD pipeline, and then every time you make a code change, it then push again and get your two-factor authentication token out again. Nothing yeah. more annoying than that. Yeah. So <laughs> that's 
It's one of those, like, I know there's places that that's really required, but like, oh, that's a terrible Well, multi-factors required. The certificate base being a second factor is, is the way to go. That's pretty much better. <laughs> yeah, for sure. If you, if you can get that way. Not really sure how it mitigates a great deal, though. I mean, if you still have a username and password that somebody could steal, then they can just log into your account and add an SSH key to your, to your profile sure, yeah. and then mm-hmm. use that to get, to get your file, the data out of Git. So I, I don't know. It's, um, it's, it's an obfuscation more than anything. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's hygiene in modern practice, I think. Yeah. I mean, is it, is it easier to detect uh, brute force attacks uh, through the SSH path versus the username and password path? I don't know. I think it's really just about them, you know, make, you know, the best practice is that you use keys and you use that in a CICD pipeline. And if you give people the ability to use username and password, they will do that. And that's not a best practice. So now by removing this ability, you've now removed the bad practice from operation and said that only the best practice is now authorized. So I get it. It's just, yeah, it's a little bit of a weird way to do it. Yeah. So I guess you don't accidentally share your SSH key at a phishing site when it says, when it has a fake login page. Is, I, so I haven't looked into enough because I haven't had time. But um, so in, in typical GitHub fashion, uh, you know, you could always do SSH-based key authentication to do pushes and pulls. And then in the web, if you're using a web URL, though, that's where you had to use the username and password. So what are they using? Is that the same key that they're using for SSH? Is now that what you use to authenticate the web call? No, that's that personal access token that I was talking about. Yeah. Oh, the personal. Yeah. So access. SSH key is completely none of that changes. But when you are doing the HTTPS endpoint for for pulls, because I mean, being able to do get pulls and pushes through HTTP is a godsend because there's so many places that don't allow SSH. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, but the personal access key is its own attack vector. So yeah, I see your concern. Yeah, I mean, I, I could I could link my Git instance to to a corporate AD or something with a password policy with with password rotation requirements and things and password complexity requirements. So now if I stop people using passwords to check things out. They're going to use a key which will sit, sit on the hard drive and never change for ten years, or until they leave the company or something. It just it doesn't seem like a manageable, uh, you know, a more a more secure way to manage access to the service. But, it's not, and I yeah. would hope that during our day job, you don't bring that up to anyone else, please. Make my life hard. Uh, I'll drop. I'll drop in the show notes. Uh, we didn't actually have that as a topic to talk about the GitHub thing, but I'll, I'll drop in the show notes so you guys can check that out. If you're, if we're, what we're talking about is to you all news. Uh, yes, GitHub announced that they are getting away from username, password, basic auth. All right. Uh, so the final Google story for the week is the top five launches of 2021 so far. They have summarized what Google thinks is the most impressive announcements, and uh, you know, there's a couple of things about this list. I uh, always go through it. That you know, I have some snark. But uh, number two, like it's interesting to me with things that they think are super, super critical and super important. And the things that didn't make this list are also just as interesting to me uh, as well. So the first one they highlighted was Vertex AI, which, you know, I, I do agree Vertex AI is a great solution to help companies adopt ML much faster. Um, but in many ways, it's a SageMaker clone. <laughs> so, actually written by the same product manager who left Amazon to go to Google and then created SageMaker 2.0 as Vertex AI. Right, so, uh, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a little bit weird. Uh, but, you know, I, I agree. I think that's a good feature. Uh, number two is one that I was most excited about on this list, uh, which is GKA Autopilot, which is the Google managing your Kubernetes nodes. I think this is a big lift uh, off of people's backs to banish Kubernetes, especially in Google. I think it's shocking huge. that it's uh, 2021 and they're announcing that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I know. Exactly. Uh, and then after those first two, we kind of get into, you know, okay. <laughs> so the next one is Tau VMs, which are their new VM compute engine powered by the third gen AMD Epic processors, uh, which, you know, would be fine if you read this and you, they also mentioned that this also supports their com- secure compute enclaves, uh, which is actually, I think, really cool and trusted computing side, which they didn't even highlight in this Tau VM announcement. So, you know, okay. Uh, so that's the third one. And then uh, Dataplex, which Google says it's been dubbed Intelligent Data Fabric. Uh, by who? I'm not sure. Uh, which means you can get unified data management for data warehouses, data lakes, data marts, and databases. Uh, which is one of those cap- capabilities that only Am- only Google can really deliver because of the way they do storage. is so different from other cloud providers. So, you know, okay, from Google's perspective, it's a very big competitive advantage. But to everyone else, I'm not sure it's as exciting. And then the last one was Workflows, which is basically IFT for Google, or I-F-F-T uh, for Google to help you orchestrate and automate Google Cloud and HTTP-based API services with a serverless workflow, which I'm sure will get no code later this year, too. So it'll be no code workflows. <laughs> but uh, there you go. So that's, that's, that's Google's top five. What do you guys think? It's like a BuzzFeed article. <laughs> oh, goodness. That's a good way. So we don't have anything better to talk about this time, so let's, let's put together this, this uh, top five list of answers. Well, it, this is this is the uh, equivalent of, you know, don't announce anything this week because uh, reinforce and uh, the summit's going on this week, and we just want to get buried in the news. And then, you know, some poor blog editor who's like, I have to write three articles and post yeah. them this week. <laughs> and what what can I do for the third one? I'll, I'll just do a filler article like this. Let's feel that way. Just, we're going to get away with it too because we were so buried in other news and summits and announcements, we didn't go through and look at the other releases in 2021 and be like, no, this is the list you should have done. But. Hmm. Because I'm pretty sure this would not be my list. That can be next week. You'll I'm never sure believe yeah. which which uh, launches missed the top five launches of 2021 so far. <laughs> <laughs> New show title. That would be <laughs> you know, I mean, we keep the notes for for this on a Google Doc. You think there's someone secretly monitoring and telling all of GCP? We only have two. We only have two stories yet. Somebody write something. We need a third story for this week's wow. top. I hope so. I mean, if that was true, that would yeah. be awesome. But also, if that's true, I mean, I'm terrified. Yeah, data privacy. That they would, they would care. Enough. <laughs> yeah. Data privacy? GBDR? Nah, nah. No, not important. For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud's zero-trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash thecloudpod. Well, moving on to Azure, and uh, you know, we have the blessing that we <laughs> we decided to record on Thursday or Friday this week, uh, and uh, that means that we caught the news that Charlie Bell is going to Microsoft. That's yeah, I thought he was retiring. We just said uh, he was tired and he was retiring. We, you know, I mean, that was our speculation mm-hmm. at the time was that maybe he's retiring because you know there was no announcement of where he was going to go. Uh, but apparently, he appeared on the org chart inside of Microsoft, uh, reporting to the chief people officer Kathleen Hogan. 
uh, with no direct reports. Uh, and uh, the follow-up article said that, you know, apparently this is because Bell's taking a few weeks off. Uh, while Microsoft and Amazon negotiate the legal agreement dictating what he can and cannot do in his new role that won't violate his terms of his non-compete. <laughs> so uh, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what he's going to do, we don't know yet. What he's going to run, we're not sure. But, uh, you know, I, I sort of speculate maybe that this is, he wanted the CEO of AWS title uh, and didn't get that. So, you know, instead of reporting to the guy who was his peer, uh, he said, sayonara. And then I'm sure Microsoft offered him a lot of money to come join uh, all the people over at the Microsoft space and bring really, you know, one of the best operational minds in the business to Azure, which, you know, if we talk about what we complain about Azure is their availability, and this is a great way to fix that problem, bring the guy who's brought, you know, brought availability to uh, Amazon in a big way. I think if Amazon have their way, his job title Microsoft is going to be like chief janitor or something. I mean, I can't, mm. yeah, I can't really. see <laughs> letting him, well, yeah, I can't see letting him uh, be responsible for a great deal of things without a huge fight. Yeah. You can pay him, but he can't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least for 18 yeah. months. But maybe, you know, maybe Microsoft's just like, yeah, you know, take 18 months off and we'll pay your salary. And then as soon as it's over, you're yeah. in. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you're allowed three smiles, two nods, one shake of the head, and don't say anything. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's hard not to see this as a great move by Azure and, and a lot of potential. And there's just a lot of experience there and so it's it's it is interesting and it's also it's good on amazon for learning you know how to enforce non-competes in a way that doesn't just drag yourself through the through the mud <laughs> as they have previously <laughs> trying to well, go we'll after everyone with lawyers jury's yeah. still out yeah that's true yeah yeah it's not in court yet you know they haven't sued him but when that happens you know we'll let you know <laughs> Well, you know, the, the, one of the reasons why, you know, 23-year veteran of Amazon and then going to Microsoft, you know, you had to imagine that maybe they delivered a lar- very large comp package of money to his front door and said, hey, hey, we need you to come here and here's what we'll give you in exchange for that. And then, of course, you know, the, the financial team inside says, you know, well, we got to pay for that. That was a <laughs> lot of money you guys just dropped. Uh, and so they, they apparently came up with a way, which is that they're going to raise the price of Microsoft 365. <laughs> Uh, which, or, or as we mostly know it as Office 365 because they rebranded it for some strange region, uh, they have increased the price uh, for Microsoft 365 Business Basic from uh, to $6 up from $5. Uh, and all the plans had previously a $1 to $2 raise, uh, which, you know, on the surface of it is like, okay. But then, like, you know, my first answer was like, well, why are you raising the prices? And their answer is, well, we've given you so much more value. So they claim that they've delivered 1,400 new bells and whistles uh, to the Office suite today. And when they say Office Suite, you're talking Excel, Word, Access, and PowerPoint. Uh, I don't know where those 1,400 new bells and whistles are. <laughs> I mean, I know like you guys have done some little bit of magic around how templates work and how themes work and being able to apply those more dynamically and some you know better smart art, but that's not 1,400. And then they say, and the additional value we brought with 24 other apps we've added to Microsoft 365, including amazing apps such as Yammer. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Power BI. Teams, Planner, Stream, OneDrive, and Whiteboard. All, all the value add they bring to you. Uh, and so, you know, that's, uh, you know, if you're a Microsoft customer, you're saying, ouch, this is going to hurt a little bit if you have a big organization. Uh, but Microsoft's bean counters say yes, because this apparently could be an additional $5 billion boost in the revenue for Microsoft Office 365, which, you know, is important to us because, of course, Microsoft 365 is included in the Azure number and reported as one line item, which then a $5 billion increase uh, could be a pretty big increase in revenue and growth that Azure could then tout and say, we are finally the biggest, fastest growing mm-hmm. cloud in the world. 
There you go. That's my take. Ah, they didn't raise the price for Charlie Bell. But they, no, no, they did. that was they, that was uh, well in the worst. Yeah. But it's just funny. I can make fun of it. That well, Charlie Bell's important. So, so I think all they had to do is offer a bigger air conditioner for the guy or something. Because. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Weatherlock has not been too great recently. No. Nope. I think the real question is how much cheaper is it today than it was four years ago if you're paying in Bitcoin? Hmm. Mm. I mean, I know that my sanity would pay these 365 <laughs> prices every day of the week versus managing an exchange server oh, yeah. ever again. Um, so, you know, from that side of it, you know, please take my money. But then I'm also like, well, why don't we give my money to Google? Because they're, you know, Google and it works just as well. What a huge risk, though, to be to kind of go all in on Office 365 or Microsoft 365 with potentially tens of thousands of employees, and then the price goes up by a significant percentage. I know it would be a big deal yeah. for a lot of companies that uh, you know this is a, this is a very fixed cost per employee allocation item in a, in their IT budget, and yet yeah, it's two dollars more a month. Uh, but you know that adds up across ten thousand employees. Yeah, typically, like maybe maybe you sign a one or th- three year agreement with a you know, for, for a service like mm-hmm. this, so it's not like you're protected for for long enough to be safe. Right? Yeah, if you're in an EA, you might have a three year mm-hmm. deal. Uh, but then you know there's there typically even in your EA agreements, there's already cost increase levers built into the contract, so they can increase some prices. Typically, it's not been the Office ones; <laughs> it's been the SQL Server one. But uh, you know they have those options typically in those contracts. Um, so you know. I, even with this price change going into effect, I think it was into effect October first. Um, you know, they, we won't see the direct impact of that until contracts get renewed. But uh, you know, definitely, if you are in the middle of negotiating an Office sixty five contract, sign up for three years right now at the current <laughs> pricing before before it's too late. Avoid the cloud lock in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It's interesting. I just realized that you know because Microsoft three sixty five is directly sold to consumers now for for new computers, and so this does not seem to affect any of that, which is interesting as well. I mean that's how I that's how I pay for office mm-hmm. on my computer my personal computers. I have a subscription. I pay you know ten bucks a month or whatever it is, and I get access to all those things. Now, if they would include the Windows licensing into that price as well, I might pay extra for that, <laughs> but they don't. <laughs> nope. Uh, all right. Well, uh, so this is important if you're using Azure services, and those services happen to be HB series instances, NC instances, H series instances. NCV2 instances, uh, or if you're using Azure App Service for Tomcat or PHP 7.3 or, you know, weird kind of out there things like the Cosmos DB.NET SDK version 2.0 or the basic and standard A series of VMs or the Azure ADB to C redirect URL, uh, I have bad news. They've all been announced for retirement. So they'll be going away very soon. Uh, It was just a long, long list of retirement announcements from Azure this week on the blog RSS feed. Uh, Again, you know, dump all that stuff out while Amazon's having an event. So no one notices (laughs) that you're killing a ton of stuff. Uh, You know, you don't want to get that reputation like killed by Google uh, has over there at the Google shop. So uh, if you are on those app services like Tomcat 7 uh, or the PHP.73, you have the earliest uh, end of date, which is uh, coming up as March 2021. Uh, or sorry, yeah, 2022. Sorry, 2022. Type on my notes here. Uh, that's coming up very quickly. So do make sure you uh, get on of those products very quickly. And then uh, for some of the instance types, they retire in August 2022, and some of them end in August 2024, depending on which one it is. Uh, so do check with your really your customer advocate at Azure and say, hey, which of these do I need to worry about? And uh, get to work upgrading because they're going away. Work off, Hawker. We'll do it for you. There you go. Yep, or call yeah. Always a Easy. win too. 
Well, that was it. Uh, you know, interesting week in the cloud, as always. Uh, Peter, you want to do the live <laughs> round? I would love to. Uh, let's start with Windows 11 Public Preview, which is now available on Azure Virtual Desktop. I'm trying to figure out which corporate IT guy was like, yeah, I want Windows 11 Public Preview on all my corporate Azure v- VDIs, and I want to troubleshoot that mess. Uh, like, how, how many customers are going to use this? Well, that same IT guy is just trying to stay ahead of all the tools he's going to have to figure out how to update and compatibility and the whole thing. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, you could imagine it's going to be like a year from public preview to, yeah, we got all our stuff running that we need running on this thing. But the minute it's announced, you're going to have a customer base saying, hey, I demand this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm still waiting. Almost, we're almost to the annual cycle where we get a new Mac OS, and my Mac, my current work Mac OS is still on last year's version because they are still waiting for a vendor to be certified on the new version of Mac OS. And I'm like, yeah, but we're about to we're about to lap ourselves here. Like, can we tell the you know throw the vendor out if this is the case we're in right now? Suddenly, everyone sees the value of the leapfrog. Yeah, if we wait a little longer. We could skip that one altogether. Right. The alternative is they update you right away, and nothing works. <laughs> Like it's, I mean, which I, is how I, my I'm okay with a healthy balance on my. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm okay with a healthy balance on my work computer. Uh, my personal computer, I've, I'm more gung ho to go to the new version. And then I used to do beta versions Oof. on my my Apple yeah, devices, but that was a bad insanity. choice, and I stopped doing that because I like my phone to actually work mm-hmm. when I need it to work. Yeah, if you're going to be in the Apple ecosystem, that's what you're paying for, right? Like that's this thing just does what yeah, I want exactly. it to. I mean, if I if I wanted a phone that didn't work, I just go buy an Android. Right? Yes, and due but, to the Going totally against the spirit of the lightning round, those answers are all disqualified. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. General availability announcement. AKS now supports Kubernetes 1.21. Which my favorite part of this whole announcement is that they literally have one sentence in the press release. And they actually did a press release that says we now support 1.21 and the 50 new features. And then it says, click here for learn more, and it takes you right to Kubernetes GitHub repo. Well done. That's nice. No, no fluff, yeah. no, no noise, just we support it, go away. They have met some sort of checkbox requirement for announcing this support. I still say you can't say 1.21 when it's 1.21. You got to say 1.21. That's a good call, actually, okay. yeah. Uh, that is back good. to the future. That's funny. I am back to the future picture to somebody today. 21. Gigawatt. Amazon Elasticaster Redis now supports auto-scaling. Just in time for memory DB to take all their market share. Yeah. <laughs> so you can auto-scale to yeah. zero. Introducing Amazon SageMaker Asynchronous Inference, a new inference option for workloads with large payload sizes and long inference processing times. I was disappointed this didn't have a TLDR because uh-huh. I really needed it too. <laughs> I mean, what's the difference between asynchronous and and serverless exactly. I mean, like, I mean, asynchronous is easy, right? This giant ass payload that you expect, you know, the service to analyze. We're just not going to tell you when it's going to be done. We'll just do it and we'll report back whenever it's done. So, so no. That's why you have, that's why you go to a console and you see your job status and it's like, it's still delivering. And you're like, it was delivered six months yeah. ago, but okay. the async process never yeah. caught up. <laughs> no SLA. And it's, and it's a marketing thing. We, we now call it a new feature. Okay. Mm-hmm. Asynchronous. Yeah. Yeah. Amazon Data Lifecycle Manager now automates deprecation of Amazon Machine Images. What another fun way to prank your employer when you quit. <laughs> Have all your images deprecated Oops. as you leave. Oops. So you say when you leave, but I, I suspect that I will somehow prank myself with this feature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do it on like my, my first anniversary of being gone. 
<laughs> People ask for this and then they will regret it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. AWS database migration service now supports automatic segmentation using MongoDB and Amazon Document DB with MongoDB compatibility as a source. With MongoDB compatibility. I said it. Very well done. I know you did. I, I'm just, it's a lot of MongoDB compatibility. That's all I see. Yeah. Turtles. Turtles all the way you down. You said all of that, and it was amazing restraint for all of us not to start changing the words right in the middle of that. <laughs> it's true. I would have, that, that's so long and so confusing. I would have said anything. That was in the middle of that. Yeah. I was slightly intrigued by Amazon DocumentDB as the source. You mean people want to get out of DocumentDB back to MongoDB? Like, hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe things are so rosy there. Hmm. Okay. IPv6 endpoints are now available for the Amazon EC2 instance metadata service, Amazon TimeSync service, and Amazon VPC DNS server. I mean, so now I'm just waiting for the announcement that you can now turn off IPv4 on an instance, mm-hmm. which now makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, great. Finally, I've got some use for that IPv6 interface that's been in my CentOS box for the past 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know. <laughs> right? You don't want to sit yeah. there doing nothing anymore? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, a, no, like yeah, the first thing everyone does is turn it off. We won't need this new standards. Yeah, mm-hmm. This also made me wonder like, when Amazon counts the number of services they offer, do they count these services? Like the time sync service? Do they count that really? Or do, oh, the metadata service? Do they count that as a service that they offer? Because they, they, I mean, they, they do ish. Probably a two pizza <laughs> team, right? Maybe. Yeah. yeah, for time sync service, that'd be awesome, right? <laughs> I want to be on what that do you team. Do the Amazon web services. Yeah. I'm on the time sync yeah. service team. That's all I do. Like, actually, know, have you ever fun. administered an NTP service for a large enterprise? Because it's actually kind of fun. No, super fun. I imagine this. If you're if you're a giant nerd, mm-hmm. it's super fun. It's like I want to buy my own yeah. atomic clock, antennas, satellites, space, and yeah. I like watches in general. So like anything to do with time, I'm I'm in. So. Crystal time, space time. The new Amazon DB console, excuse me, the new Amazon Dynamo DB console is now your default experience to help you manage data and resources more easily. I'm mostly annoyed that it's a default experience. Mm-hmm. No, your default experience should be the CLI. Come on, guys. API. Because we, we all know that, or the API. We know the console is going to be garbage. Yes. So SDK. Just, yeah. SDK. I, I didn't yeah. even, I didn't even, I didn't even go do a thing because I just knew it was going to be bad. I, I didn't even bother. <laughs> and manage data and resources more easily. Like something erupts from me wrong about that. Like, yeah, doubtful. Well, why are you managing your data in the UI of the console versus, you know, using the APIs or doing it through your interface that you should have for your product? Like it just, everything about this is wrong. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I just figured it out. It's actually because the Amazon DynamoDB API is terribly hard to use. And of course, that's not going to be default. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's introduce to the world CloudWatch Container Insights Prometheus support with AWS Distro for Open Telemetry on Amazon ECS and Amazon EKS. This is the exact number one piece of evidence of why, for every name my wife came up with for my children, I then tried to figure out how I can make fun of it. <laughs> because putting all of this together is exactly what happens. Like it just this is ridiculous. Like how, how do you even manage that? Like. Like it's just buzzword bingo all over this headline, and it's and there's actually like four services mentioned there, or actually five. Uh, you know that you have no idea what they are <laughs> because that is so complicated to parse. Yeah, like I want to monitor my containers. Yeah, all I could all I had to do is say was uh, you know I'm going to use my container monitoring service through Prometheus uh, for Open Telemetry on top of managed 
Kubernetes. Like, like you could simplify it so much down, much easier. But no, no, you have all these dumb brand names in here. <laughs> it's true. I think just like Google is is monitoring, you know, our page, you know, for trying to figure out which entries to put in here. Amazon is also listening, and they're just trying to trip up Peter. Yeah, maybe, maybe. <laughs> It's a ploy. It's a ploy to get them, yeah. All right, let's close out the night with AWS IoT Core now supporting MQTT retained messages. You know, I, this is one of those areas that I have no experience with IoT. Uh, but some people were really excited about this on Reddit, so we're going to put it here in lightning round because I don't know what it is or what it's important, but IoT people are in, super happy. <laughs> I, I got nothing. <laughs> Yeah, it's a tough one. I know what an IoT is. I know that one. I know what a core is. That's about it. I know what a message is. What an MQTT? I'm not sure. (laughs) But it retains messages. I know this now. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a database of some sort, right? It's got to be. Yes. Uh, Maybe some sort of consistent message queue. I mean, it'd be nice if they actually describe what MQTT is in the press release. But no. You know what I think it is? Let you. Let you Google that on your own. I think if you don't know what MQTT stands for, the announcement isn't for you. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think that's true. Yeah. So, so they they do have a link in in the press release, which takes you to another page, which then doesn't really explain what they are, but it does give you a couple examples. So you know, they're at least trying. You know, so I, I just googled MQTT for real time follow up, and it starts out MQTT is an OASIS standard messaging protocol for the Internet of Things. So you used MQTT in the definition. Perfect. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> is Zigbee still a thing for IoT? I can't remember. Again, I have no idea because this is not my area. I, don't I bought a I, I bought a new iRobot vacuum. Like that's as close as I get <laughs> to the space. <laughs> All right, that's it for the lightning round. Winners got to be out of scaling Redis to zero. Good job, Justin. <laughs> thank you, thank you. All right, well, that was a great lightning round. Uh, we had a nice couple of sidebars there too, which was fun. Uh, <laughs> there are things, of course, coming up once again here. Uh, September second is going to be the Amazon Storage Day. Uh, I would love to see them blow my mind with something cool in storage that they don't already have. Uh, I don't know what that would be. S four. S four. S four. Yeah. S4 or, you know, like ZFS from Amazon, Amazon ZFS, you know, that way they can piss off Oracle even more. I don't know. Something like that might be fun. Uh, and then, of course, reInvent is still scheduled for November 29th to December 3rd. I am now hedging my bets that that's not going to happen. And I canceled my uh, Airbnb and switched to a AWS hotel. That way, when it gets canceled, they'll just take mm-hmm. care of that for me. Google Cloud Next is coming up October 12th through the 14th, uh, still virtual. And then, of course, we have SNCConf and KubeCon all coming up in October, as well as HashiConf. Uh, all available to you very, very soon here in the next few months. So if you're interested in those, go check those out. Go sign up for them and, and enjoy the free uh, you know, summit experience, which has none of the benefits. Just Or just wait for them to go on YouTube, which is what I do. That is it for another fantastic week here in the cloud. Have a great night, guys. See you later. Good night. Bye, everybody. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. 